0: Hi folks, today is November 30th, and if it's Tuesday, then this is The Delve. There's a small kingdom nation in Southern Africa landlocked by South Africa on three sides and Mozambique to the east. It is called Iswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, and it is home to 1.2 million emaswati, the Swazi people. It is a deeply traditional place full of mountains, farms, warm greetings, sugarcane, and indigenous culture. Iswatini is also ruled by an absolute monarch by the name of King Meswati III. There has been massive civil unrest in the country since June, after law student Tambani Nakamoni was murdered by police under mysterious circumstances. Around the same time, three members of parliament stood up in session and made a direct call for democratic reforms, something completely unheard of in this absolute monarchy. The king notoriously does not take kindly to challenges of his authority and two of the members were arrested on charges of terrorism and conspiracy. They were later charged as well for murder, for inciting the deadly protests that followed their arrest, and contravening lockdown regulations. They are being held in prison right now as we speak. The third member managed to flee the country and is still at large. The protest in support of Tabani and the three pro-democracy members snowballed quickly into the largest pro-democracy demonstration in the history of this nation. Since June, the frequent demonstrations, both peaceful and and riotous, have rocked the country known for being such a tranquil place. The king has ordered the military and police force, both of whom answer directly and only to him and his mother, to kill any dissenters. At least 80 protesters have died at the hands of state forces and hundreds more have been jailed or maimed. King Miswati was sworn in at the age of 18 in 1986 and has since amassed a massive fortune. As the majority shareholder in most profitable businesses in the country and the default owner of all the land and its farms, he has an estimated $200 million, 15 wives, at least 36 children, as many as 15 palaces, 13 Rolls Royces, and is one of six people in the world that own a Jacob & Co. Billionaire 3 timepiece. That is a watch worth $18 million. And that's just among many other diamond-encrusted watches. He's also rich in scandal, accusations of child trafficking, abuse, kidnapping, corruption, and more. He has consolidated his already impenetrable power in a series of constitutional reforms. He appoints all of the country's judges and ministers, including the prime minister. And political parties have been banned since the reign of his father, who by most accounts was much beloved by the country, King Sabuso, in 1973. More than 60% of the Swazi people live on less than a dollar a day, and the entire ruling class of the country is made up of the extended royal family, the Dalaminis. More than 60% of the Swazi people live on less than a dollar a day, and the entire ruling class of the country is made up of the extended royal family, the Dalaminis, many direct descendants of King Sabahuzas and his 70 wives. There are five official demands of the protesters an all-inclusive externally mediated national dialogue, total unbanning of political parties, including Podemo, a transitional executive authority, a new democratic constitution, a multi-party democratic dispensation. Today we are speaking with Tulani Maseko, who is a leading Swazi human rights lawyer and the chair of the Multi-Stakeholders Forum. Tulani is not just a thought leader in this movement, he personally spent more than 14 months in prison for his criticism of state corruption back in 2014. If this story moves you in any way, we ask that you support this one teeny solidarity fund that is giving direct aid to families brutalized by state forces during the protests. You can find them on social media. We will also put their handle on the episode notes. And please share the story and other news about the uprising far and wide, because without international media attention, the king and his forces will continue to unabashedly brutalize the Swazi people. Here's my conversation with Tulani. Let's have a listen. Okay, um, everyone, thanks and welcome back to the Delve. Today we have a very special guest to explain to us the situation that's happening in the southern African nation of Swatini. We have Tulani Maseko on. How, how are you today, sir?
1: I'm very well, thank you. And how are you?
0: I'm doing pretty good. And this isn't necessarily my region of expertise, <laughs> but one of my dear colleagues actually lives in Southern Africa. And so we have Madison on to be my co-host. How's it going, Madison?
2: Hi, I'm good. Happy Great. to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited for this conversation because I feel like the situation that's going down in Niswatini is something that does not get a lot of coverage back in the States. and I would like to broaden that narrative a little bit. And so Tulani, once again, we're really, really grateful to have you on. So let's just jump right into this. Tulani, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and the movement that you work in.
1: Well, personally, Charlene, I'm an attorney practicing in the courts of Swaziland. I really focus on human rights issues and constitutional law, including uh, in my short life as an attorney. I have acted for many of the people who are advocating for peaceful change from the current oppressive uh, Tingunla regime into a fully-fledged multi-party democracy in Swaziland. This would include your late president, Mario Masugov-Pudemo. I acted for him and was charged for sedition in 2001. I acted for him and was uh, charged under the terrorism law of the country in 2008 and uh, we worked together with the the late Jan Sitole who was a very famous veteran leader who later became a president of one of the political parties in Swaziland now called the Swazi Democratic Party Swatepa so I can say that perhaps all my my life as a young student activist I've been involved in human rights work working together with those many Swazis who are fighting for a better society in our country.
2: So Tulani, the uprising that we're seeing now in Eswatini really began in May or June or so there. Can you speak a little bit about what sparked this latest move for a multi-party democracy?
1: One would say that uh, the events of uh, early May, late June are a culmination of a long-standing frustration of the people of this nation with the current oppressive royal Tingunla regime. We often say that uh, it should not be taken as something that came from, from nowhere. This country has been having this recurring crisis from the 12th of April 1973 when the late king, King Sobuza II, the father of the current king, unlawfully you know, usurped powers of the Constitution and abrogated it and imposed himself as the supreme leader of this nation without any limitations uh, in terms of checks and balances. So over the years, many sources have been advocating that the country returns to a situation where the rule of law, human rights and democracy, becomes the basis of governance in this country and where the people would have the right to elect and form a government as They see fit. So, what happened over the many years of struggle is that, uh, for the first time in the history of Swaziland, the call for transformation resonated, you know, within Parliament and was taken up by a few members of Parliament who started the call for an elected Prime Minister, you know, within the four walls of the current system, you know. Uh, but they also then worked with the pro-democracy movement. To expand the call now saying the prime minister must be elected within a system where multi-party democracy is a base of our governments in this country. So that led to the crisis in beginning of May and then uh, late June up to July, up to the present moment actually.
2: Can you explain for our listeners sort of what has the movement looked like? What has this latest uprising looked like? How many people are in the streets? What is the country's sentiment? What is it like on the ground in Eswatini?
1: As we speak now, Madison, there's many Swazis who are languishing in jail following the Mm. June, July uprising. Many of them have appeared before the courts. They have been made to pay excessive amounts of bail, which they can't afford, obviously. So they continue to languish in jail. Many of them have been charged under the, what you call, the public order laws of our country many of them have been charged with the looting and vandalism so they continue to stay in jail but the situation outside even though there's some bit of of calm because of the violence of the state against innocent citizens people are now sort of scared to come out and express themselves because in response the government you know has been using live rounds of bullets to shoot and kill you know, and maim citizens. But there is mm-hmm. no question uh, that the calm is merely just a, perhaps a calm before the real storm, because the mm-hmm. tension continues to groom as people, you know, are frustrated. Now they've got no way to express themselves because when mm-hmm. people mean that I'm employed, the government responds violently through the army and the police and all forms of security mm-hmm. organs of state just to suppress the, the will of the people. So right now, one can say that even though it appears that there's some some calm, we know that people on the ground are very upset, they're very angry, they continue to organize, and very soon, uh, we understand that the the crisis will escalate once more. And then we may see more lives being lost, we may see many more people being injured, actually, we may even see many more people fleeing the country, because many young people have left the country because the police mm. are looking for them. They want to arrest them. They want to charge them. They even want to kill them. So in the mm. communities, you know, there is no peace because the army and the police continue to terrorize people in the middle of the night with their view to break the spirit and uh, force them to accept, you know, the system. Even though the military clear that they're tired, you know, of the kind of uh, establishment they want multi-party democracy in our country.
2: And how many protesters at this point have died at the hands of state forces?
1: The Human Rights Commission, which is an organ of government created under the Constitution, has reported at least some 46 people who were killed during the, the unrest. But we know that the number is, is far more than that. The last count that we did you know, end of July was uh, about 80 identified people we do believe that there's many more people who were killed who have not been identified or who maybe are lying somewhere in the in the bushes some mm-hmm. of them lie somewhere in the mugs with nobody to identify and take them up for burial so they, mm-hmm. conservatively we can say that uh, not less than 100 people have been killed during yeah. the, the crisis
0: how wealthy is is the king and his family and And how does the king make his wealth?
1: I was just talking to somebody yesterday here in my office who was saying to me, during colonialism, the land in this country was taken by the white colonialists uh, and they they converted into, into concessions, later converted those concessions into private farms. And many of them then left. So the colleague was saying to me, his majesty the king has engaged in a program where those private farms which were helped by the colonialists back then are now being you know transferred into his name through a company called Silulu, something like that so the mm. first point would be that the king is expanding his economic power by depriving the swazi nation of the right to land. And you know, we Africans believe that uh, without land, you are basically useless. So we were hoping that at the end of colonialism, the land would be transferred back to the people. So in more ways than one, we find ourselves in a situation almost like South Africa, where the vast areas of land are held by the hands of a few people including the right. majesty the king you understand that uh, the king then would hold land in two capacities he would hold land in the first instance you know as a head of the traditional system of government here and the land under swadu and custom what of course custom is held by the king in trust for the people that he does that through the chiefs who are his mm-hmm. uh, you know, henchmen so that's the one leg. The second leg is that he co- then controls the land through his private capacity, through his companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is called, you know, in, the, in the local language, which is the mineral wealth of the country, mm, held right. by, by his private capacity. So you see that uh, once you control the land, you virtually control the economy and the people. But the second aspect of how the king controls the economy is obviously through his investments. And in this country, all minerals, you know, are controlled, are held by the king in trust for the Southern Nation. It means your mm-hmm. your your coal that you mine, we hear that there's diamond somewhere in some parts of the country. This, this is not held by the by the central government, is held by the king in trust for the nation. But over and above that, the king is in a process of actually buying many of the companies. We hear right. that uh, he bought companies uh, such as your know, Pick and Pay, which is a fleet of uh, supermarkets. We understand that uh, he has taken over what we call the outlets of KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, in this country. You know, mm. he he's taken over the transport industry, what used to be back then, United Transport uh, Company, a company that goes around the country delivering your goods like petrol and oil. He runs that. You know, so virtually we see a king who not only controls the political power, he has his hands in the economy. I may add right. and say, for instance, your, your MCN company, mobile mm-hmm. telephone network company, the king has, has shares there. You know, the king has shares in, in the local uh, mobile company as so well as the mobile, he has shares there. <laughs> the king has shares in some banks, uh, we're told, net bank. So you, you see mm-hmm. that it's going to us everywhere in the economy. And uh, right. people have said that uh, he must disabuse himself of competing against his people on the cake of the economy, but we're not winning. Let me end by mm-hmm. saying that also this country, the economy is founded on agriculture, fundamentally on the sugar industry. The king has an interest in the sugar industry in our country through his investments, one, two, the king uh, is exporting a lot of trees, you know, the pulp industry. We're told now the king has got massive interest in the tree growing industry, which is controlled by the minister, for instance, for finance, So you you see, we have a a monarchy which which who is not satisfied by just controlling the mass of, of the people through traditional structures. He controls us politically and economically. So what a doomed nation, as it were.
2: So I think on that note, sort of just his political power as well as his economic power, the king himself has been flagged by international bodies for trafficking of children, for child marriage, for other abuses. Would you say that he's been allowed to continue on um, from sort of an interna- international standpoint because of his economic power and his political power? or? Is there another reason why he hasn't really been challenged by the international community?
1: We in this country believe that uh, this regime that is uh, reigning and uh, ravaging our country has been able to get out with murder in the sense that uh, we've always been referred to as a unique nation, a nation mm. that, that is so embedded in its cultural values and customs to the extent that we maybe don't care so much about democracy, rule of law and human rights which is a misnomer so his majesty has been able to love the world by perpetuating a narrative that says as a swazi people we care so much about our culture and custom and we don't really focus on democracy as uh, human beings
2: Mm.
1: and that's how the king in our view has been able to fool the world into believing Mm. that we're a peaceful nation we're happy with him Abusing us as it does, which is totally, totally untrue. But of course, mm. you would understand that in the region, Sadak, he is now the longest serving head of state. Right. All the new presidents, you know, from South Africa to Zambia, Malawi, Mozambique, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, all the heads of state that are currently sitting in Sadak are new leaders. The king mm. was there during the time of uh, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. He was there during the time of uh, President Mandela in South Africa. He was Mm. there during the time of uh, Chisano of Mozambique. He Mm. was there during the time of uh, the founding father of Tanzania. So Mm
2: -hmm. to
1: some extent, you may find that uh, these new crop of leaders defer to him as a senior state uh, person, Mm. able to use his way to manipulate them given his mm. experience. This applies to the entire African region. You know, he was, he's was he been there during the time of Museven of, of Uganda and a whole, whole lot of them. So he remains right. perhaps the, the longest-serving head of state in Africa in recent history. So they want no. to confess him with many, on, in many fronts.
2: It's interesting to hear you say that, though, because he came to power in 1986, is that correct? But he was 18 years old at the time. So he Absolutely. is... What he's around fifty? Is that correct?
1: Fifty-two.
2: Okay, and a lot of the heads of state on the continent are quite old. I mean, a lot of the heads of state all around the world are quite old. So, you know, in a lot of ways, he's actually much younger, I think, than than many of the powers that be. But he has to also be one of the wealthiest. I know he's wealthier than, say, the king of the Zulu people by a lot. I don't know how his wealth compares to Cyril Ramaphosa, but he's got a lot of money for being the leader of a tiny country.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you. But you see many of the old guys of the African continent have left power. Only a few remain. So if you if you do a comparative analysis of who is here in Africa compared to, to King Mswati, no doubt he's one of the longest serving heads of state in currently mm, in right. Country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think my point is that is is using that to his benefit. It was mm. from time to time, I would assume that the, those who are coming in would want to confer with them.
2: Mm. But
1: secondly, you know, African uh, leaders have a tendency of deferring to kings because a uh, mm. king viewed as uh, people with a lot of wisdom and then from time to time you can confer. And for, for us, we've seen this when South, South African presidents have had problems, they would come to, to the king to confer and seek advice and he's been able to use that his advantage and undermine the Swazi people. But the, mm-hmm. the other issue is the one that you are mentioning that uh, is an extremely well you know individual and mm-hmm. he's using his uh, economic power to dominate poor nation. There's a theory that says that from time to time he uses money to get away in the African region because everybody loves money. So if uh, you come in and try and Persuade the king to understand your point of view, he may use other means to ensure that the pressure is shifted away from him using his economic capacity. And many Mm -hmm. of the people who invest here, you know, would then want to have some understanding with him how he can benefit from the investments and how they can also benefit. So it's a combination of factors Mm -hmm. that makes him continue to appear as a legitimate leader. But in his own country, People are saying we can't continue to be governed by a king who himself has killed so many of his own people. It has never mm-hmm. happened in the country that the government kills such a number of its own right. people. We have argued that even during the days of colonialism, there's never been a massacre of this magnitude. And uh, mm. we're so surprised that the world is still very slow in putting pressure on the king to accept that in modern societies, multi-party democracy and the will of the people is a base of government in any society. Mm -hmm.
2: Right. Very, very Uh, slow, absolutely.
0: I was just wondering, has there been any reaction perhaps outside of Africa, maybe from the US or from the EU or from the UN? Has there been any type of pressure applied towards the king to kind of like change change strategy or change tact?
1: Say for public statements that we've, we've seen, of course, from the United Nations office, we've seen that they've, they've said that the, the king must embrace dialogue. We have heard the same thing. We've seen the same sentiments being expressed by the EU as a block uh, of governments. We have heard from the United States of America that uh, dialogue is the way to go. We have heard as well from the Commonwealth that uh, they do support a process of engagement. What we do not know is uh, what amount of pressure they've been able to exert on the King to ensure that uh, his promise or utterances to a dialogue are actually meaningful. What we are concerned about is that uh, whilst the world is encouraging the King to embrace the other side and sit down and talk, we see a posture of a uh, an intention to delay the negotiations of dialogue, you know, and he expressed this to his Excellency President Ramaphosa when I he was here, that he can only start the process after, you know, what we call the, the end of year prayer for the nation, the traditional linguala. And we don't understand why the crisis must be allowed to perpetuate whilst the king goes into seclusion and the country is in a state of uncertainty, and of anarchy. So. Mm. Once we hear the world embracing dialogue, we feel that nothing is being done to persuade the king to commit to the process of, of dialogue and, and negotiation. It's just a posture that is using to delay, you know, to engage with mm. the other side.
0: Because mm. it, it seems like if, if, you know, these countries are just giving out little statements, it's nothing more than just like a little pat on the wrist there's no threats of sanctions or anything like that.
1: Absolutely. Actually, in many engagements that we have had with the members of the diplomatic corps, we've expressed the concern that uh, at the bare mini- minimum, we would expect that uh, some form of sanctions would be imposed, not on the country as such, but right. uh, we don't understand why they can't be targeted sanctions. Right. You know, to his Majesty well, about- and those people who continue to support him. Uh, but we've have, we have been told that sanctions will be destructive to the to the economy of the country. But the economy continues to be crushed by the king himself. Mm-hmm. Right, so we, right. That we are being left, you know, to our own devices of, on how we can free ourselves. And we are concerned that uh, at the end of the day, there can only be two scenarios here: a scenario of a peaceful transformation, failing which, we are afraid that the patience of the people is not endless. When all forms of communication, peaceful expression are closed, what do you expect us to do? And that those who are saying, you know, we cannot continue calling people to peaceful matches when we know very well that they will not end the match without two, three, five or ten people being shot at by the police. So we can't be sending people to the slaughterhouse, you know, to be killed by, by a government which should be defending the right to free expression in this country, actually.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So for our listenership, would the best way to support the democratic movement be to make noise within our own countries and put pressure on our governments to pay attention, to get involved and to put pressure on King Swati and his government? Alternatively, I know there's groups like the Eswatini Solidarity Fund who are going with food and money and uh, helping support medical care for those injured and killed in the to the families of people killed during the protests. Is that a good place for us to support? Should we be putting our money, investing our money directly into the Swazi people who might need help? What can we do?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, Madison. We we'll, would we'll welcome all efforts to assist the Swazi people. You rightly say, there's so many of members of the community who... Were affected, were injured. Some able bodied people are no longer able to go wake up in the morning and go to work because their limbs were were shot by by the police or they're unable to provide for themselves. So, in the Mm -hmm. interim, once we find a lasting solution, we welcome what forms of help that you may offer through the diaspora process, make resources available to those colleagues who are assisting that process. So that uh, people are able to earn a living, or as you continue to engage the government to find a lasting solution to our crisis. So we welcome that. Mm. But more, uh, Madison would welcome deputations to come here as people see fit, just to come and impress mm. on the government and the king that uh, this situation is not sustainable. The only way we can overcome this is by sitting down. And we've seen so many. People coming in, uh, members of the church from, from Southern Africa, from everywhere, coming to impress on the government and the king. that the only way we can move forward together is if we sit and deal with our differences and find ground mm-hmm. kind for of a solution.
0: I like to end these conversations with a question asking about, you know, what's something that makes you hopeful or optimistic? I, I can understand this is a very tough situation. It's so heavy. But is there anything that you know makes you hopeful for for the future?
1: Well, what keeps us going is, is the knowledge that no situation is permanent. <laughs> now uh, we have seen many countries in the midst of uh, trouble overcoming uh, their problems and moving into into a, a brighter future, and uh, that gives us hope. But fundamentally, it gives us hope that the people of this country themselves at their individual levels in their communities have taken up the struggle you know for a long time we have been the voice of the voiceless now the voiceless are the voice themselves so mm. this says to us even if we are unable to you know to lead toward democracy movement the people themselves have seen the light and they want nothing less but democracy that says to us even if we want to give up now it's too late the message has been has been heard by the people they're taking it they're running with it but what also gives us hope is people like you knowing that uh, someone in the us you know someone in the uk somewhere in a, some corner of the world is concerned about the welfare of the life of the swazi people keeps us going you know knowing that, that this struggle does not start with us But there are many others who are fighting with us in their different corners of the world, in their different ways to ensure that our struggle is not in vain. So that keeps us going. And we know that the future is right here in our hands. We can't afford to give up now.
0: Perfect. That was great.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much, (laughs) Tulani.
0: Thank you so much, Tulani. We really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week. This is the Delve.